Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column, 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 column. This week we have something a little more unusual than our typical fare. Uh, Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan are off someplace. I, Camille Foster, a free think doer of various things there, am here in the building. Uh, I'm also joined by Anthony Fisher, who is a senior editor at The Week. I screwed this up the last 20 times I tried to record this intro. But this is quite clean. Yeah, th- thank you for that. And you're screwing it up now. <laughs> um, but this week, we actually talked a lot about the Supreme Court and the various goings on there. We've had a number of opinions that were delivered this week. Uh, but importantly, we also have the departure of one Supreme Court justice, Anthony Kennedy. Um, who has been a a bit of a a linchpin for the current court. He is the swing vote, as he's often described, a libertarian jurist who has been an important and pivotal vote on issues related to campaign finance reform and abortion rights and gay rights in particular. Given that reality, we've decided to talk to two very learned gentlemen about the current circumstance. We were joined by Ken White, at Popat on Twitter and blogs at Popat. He is an attorney of great renown and has uh, is someone who we follow very closely. He's also a partner at Brown, White & Osborne in Los Angeles, California. So he'll join us first and we will talk a bit about a couple of the cases as well as his own perspectives on Justice Kennedy. We also talked to our very good friend, Damon Root, who joins us again from Reason. Uh, And Damon follows the courts very, very closely. Um, Fisher and I also interject a few things in there, uh, some conversations about immigration and uh, a radical closing uh, in which I say all sorts of things that are likely to offend certain people's sensibilities. And Fisher tries to be reasonable. Um, He is is pretty reasonable. So without further ado, here's Ken. And uh, eventually we'll get Damon on the phone, too. The fifth column. Column, column, column. Ken, thanks again. Um, There is so much stuff going on right now. Uh, We've got all these various opinions that have finally uh, come down uh, from the Supreme Court. Uh, We also have some recent news uh, with Justice Kennedy's retirement, which has sent everyone into a panic. But perhaps before we go there, maybe we could start with something from last week, uh, week before, and it's the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center settlement with Majid Nawaz, uh, which you actually wrote a pretty great, I thought, post about the settlement and perhaps some thorny issues that might be related to it. Would you mind summarizing the the concluding sentiment of that post and perhaps giving me your, your sensibility about why uh, this is perhaps a little less than something to celebrate? Absolutely. And uh, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you all. So uh, I like it when an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center admits that it's done something wrong. I thought that them putting the laws on this list of anti-Muslim extremists was pretty terrible and that their rationale was transparently bad. But I'm also very concerned about the use of defamation suits to punish views you don't like and to silence speech. And it's not clear to me that what happened here was that the Southern Poverty Law Center committed defamation because defamation isn't uh, a bad, stupid, unreasonable, bad faith opinion. It's 
a false statement of provable fact. And what concerned me was a lot of what Nawaz was complaining about. And when he was talking up this lawsuit that he was going to file, he focused on characterizations, on opinions. So he said that he didn't think people should be able to call others, you know, Nazis or racists without suffering consequences. But unless you're literally saying that someone is a member of the Nazi party, then calling someone Nazi or racist is an opinion. It's classic hyperbole, rhetoric, political opinion. So the fact that he said that he was going after that type of thing bothered me. The other thing that bothered me with this settlement was that if this case was actually about defamation and false statements of fact, then uh, I was surprised that the Southern Poverty Law Center's apology didn't spell out any false statements of fact. So it was such a complete capitulation. They, they really you know, rolled over and let him put his foot on their belly um, that you would think that if they were admitting, yes, we're making this settlement because we made some false statements of fact, they would have said what they are. But what they did instead is say we were wrong to put him on a list of anti-Muslim extremists. But that list, as, as factless as I think it was, was very much a, an opinion-based list. The word precedent got injected into the, the discourse around this decision, and there were a few pieces that were written. Um, and his response on Twitter, 7.55 um, in the morning, uh, was... Uh, oh, and for those one or two critical journalists who have no understanding of law, who are arguing that this settlement sets a bad precedent, haha, it didn't even get to court. It was an out-of-court settlement, you silly billies. The only precedent this sets is one of civility and forgiveness. Grinning face with tightly closed eyes emoji. Um, by 5.07 p.m. the same day, his follow-up response to that. Whoa, about 60 organizations are considering lawsuits against the SPLC. All hail Claire Lock LLP. String of more than 20 celebratory emoji. Um, which I think is something that you also alluded to in the piece. It's not so much that there's a legal precedent, but it certainly does create an incentive, uh, at least set, uh, if, if nothing else, like sort of a cultural benchmark here. Absolutely. Uh, and when somebody settles like this, and particularly such a, you know, a complete route by one side over the other, it, I think it does embolden people to make more defamation claims, to file more lawsuits. So, you know, maybe the Southern Poverty Law Center had a guilty conscience. I think I certainly think they did something morally wrong, uh, but it's not clear to me that they actually committed defamation. And it worries me that they surrendered like this without making it more clear why they did and why what they did was defamation. Uh, you know, Mr. Nawaz may quarrel with the word precedent, but it does set a, uh, a precedent, if not a case law precedent. It sets a precedent in terms of the types of actions that may uh, profit somebody and that may work in attacking speech you don't like. I also have to say that I think some of his comments and the comments of many of his supporters were to the effect that, you know, well, you critics don't know what you're talking about because the First Amendment doesn't protect defamation. But that's just a circular argument. It's true the First Amendment doesn't protect defamation, but the First Amendment also has quite a lot to say about what defamation is and isn't. And that's the trick here, determining what statements are protected opinion and what statements are unprotected defamation. We can transition from there to talk about a couple of these these cases that we 
have opinions for this week, since we're, we're talking about the First Amendment, um, perhaps it makes sense to start with um, the, the case coming out of California. These crisis pregnancy clinics find themselves facing a new law in California, or not so new anymore, um, but a law that would have imposed two different sets of requirement on crisis pregnancy centers, um, one for crisis pregnancy centers that were providing medical services, which oftentimes these are nonprofits who have some religious orientation, uh, and in many cases, their religious orientation leads them to be, say, less than pro-choice, um, and the the legislation would have required them to post some sort of message um, or to at least share specific language um, about the availability of free or low-cost abortion services. And in the other case, if there were unlicensed center, uh, again, sort of the same general disposition, these nonprofits, um, but in those cases, not providing medical services, doing sort of diaper and formula uh, in those cases, that they would have to mention specifically that they do not include medical help in their advertising. Um, so this is very much a First Amendment case. Could you could you give give us a sense of, of what happened in this case, what the the ruling was out of the court, and and what it means for free speech broadly? Sure, this is a very bitterly divided opinion. Like many in the last couple of weeks, it's a five to four decision, um, and it's really illustrating how controversial issues can sometimes make free speech cases more divided than they otherwise would be. If this were not a regulation really touching on abortion, I think the case probably would have come out more like seven to two in favor of the First Amendment interpretation that the majority had. So what was happening here was you were having something that the majority argued was compelled speech, uh, the government telling you what you have to say to the public. In this case, it's this speech you're having to tell the public when you're running these crisis centers. You know, we provide these services, but we're required to tell you also that you can go get an abortion. And also uh, to disclose, oh, by the way, we have to tell everybody we're not licensed. Uh, now, those are compelled speech. It's the government telling you to say something. The significance of this case is that it's part of a trend of the Supreme Court in the last 10 years rejecting new exceptions to the First Amendment. For the last 10 years or so, the Supreme Court has kind of been going traditional. It's been saying, look, uh, the First Amendment says what it says. It protects speech. And yes, there are exceptions, but they are a very small, narrow range of exceptions that are historical and traditional. And those are defamation of obscenity and a few things like that. And you can't just keep making up new exceptions. The exception that was at issue here is this concept of professional speech, that somehow when we're talking about professional speech, the courts should be more lenient towards restrictions on what a professional says in a professional context. And the first thing the court said here is, no, that's not the case. You're, you're making up a new category again. There is no general exception to the First Amendment for professional speech. It's going to get looked at like everything else. And the court talked about the few areas where restrictions are allowed, where, you know, in advertising, you can require people to disclose factual things about the services. But it rejected the concept that there's a, a broad area of professional speech that is more open to regulation. Then the court went on to analyze conduct. So it did say, well, sometimes you can regulate professional conduct. You could tell people how to, you could tell doctors how to practice. 
uh, for instance, you could tell lawyers how to practice. And sometimes that will incidentally burden speech. But that's not the case here. The court said that uh, this was really about you know, words. It was about making these clinics say particular things that advance the government's agenda. A couple of things that are interesting here. The, the dissent, I think, not unreasonably said that the majority's opinion here, um, throwing out this professional speech idea and opening up all sorts of statements to First Amendment scrutiny really is a very open-ended decision that could have effects that we can't even begin to imagine on the vast array of laws and regulations we have in America. So much, uh, so many disclosures are required. You know, uh, you know, in my state, there's all sorts of disclosures that it's hard to, to go to a place that doesn't have to have a sign up saying that, you know, substances here may uh, cause birth defects. Uh, and the array of possible laws and regulations requiring public statements and disclosures that could be vulnerable under this, it's really difficult to overstate it. So I think this one absolutely is going to generate a huge amount of additional uh, litigation. But it's the abortion issue in this one that I think really turns it into the hot potato and makes it so bitterly divided. And I think that's in part the majority's fault, because even though I think you can make a good argument that this case is a predictable extension of the First Amendment decisions the Supreme Court's been making this decade, uh, again, uh, refusing to recognize new judicially created exceptions to the First Amendment, they they also go out of their way to protect an old abortion case called Casey. Now, Casey was a case basically that upheld laws that required um, doctors to, this is in Pennsylvania, required doctors to tell uh, women who wanted abortion, you know, the state of gestation of the fetus and all sorts of information about like that, clearly calculated to dissuade women from getting an abortion. It, it was very clearly um, uh, it was very clearly compelled speech. And here, the majority tries to preserve Casey and say that's different. And to my ears, just 100% unconvincing. And the dissent just savages them on this. It says basically, so basically you're saying you can't compel uh, a business to say abortions are available, but you can compel a, a business to uh, to try to pre- prevent a woman from getting an abortion. That doesn't make sense. And it doesn't. So I think really the only way the court's majority on this could have made it plausible is if they said, yeah, well, Kennedy or Casey is now vulnerable too. Uh, we're not sure that's still good law. When we're talking about law, you know, the, the notion of there being sort of precise guidelines uh, about what kind of speech is protected and how it's protected versus a, a decision that perhaps muddies the waters a bit more. I mean, these are all abstract concepts that are somewhat subject to interpretation. Is creating a circumstance where there's likely to be more challenges and where perhaps there are uh, even challenges to things that have been a bit more customary uh, in terms of the kind of professional language that folks might be required to to share in certain contexts. Is that a is that a bad thing if we're really looking to and it protects speech on the margin? I suppose it depends on how you look at rights and how you look at a court's job. So I don't know that it's a court's job to promote you know, order and to make things easy or to prevent there being disruption. 
uh, I think there's a better argument that a court's job is to protect rights and to vindicate the rights expressed in the Bill of Rights. And so I think what the court's been doing in the free speech area is challenging sort of judicially created exceptions to the First Amendment that don't necessarily have a constitutional basis and saying, wait a minute, we know we've allowed this to creep up, but we're looking at it now and there's no constitutional basis for this category of speech that the courts have allowed to be suppressed. So I I think that's in part what's happening, and I think it's inevitable in a system where, you know, law is made this way, where, where courts gradually uh, decide cases over the spans of decades and doctrines appear that way. Ken, you, you said that, you know, abortion is the hot potato, but that you could see other cases bubbling up based on this uh, this case. What topics, like what, what specific subjects do you think might rise to the level of Supreme Court case that might build off of this case? Well, sure. In California, uh, you have something called Prop 65 that basically mandates warnings all over the place. So if you walk into a Starbucks here, you're going to see a sign saying that this place sells or has some substances that may cause birth defects. You see it everywhere. Uh, I could see that type of regulation requiring sort of indiscriminate mass uh, public statements about risks uh, coming under uh, assault under this doctrine, under this questioning of the professional speech uh, and disclosure rules. Uh, I could see all sorts of things like that, not limited to uh, not limited at all to medical fields. So, for instance, this this definitely puts an end to a line of laws that's been under attack recently. Uh, the NRA strongly promoted laws that forbade doctors from asking their patients if they had guns in the house. So you know, the AMA the AMA was encouraging doctors to say, do you have guns in the house? Are they safely stored? Do the kids have access to them? The NRA didn't like that at all, and they got a number of states to pass laws telling doctors they couldn't ask those questions. Well, those laws now are very clearly unconstitutional uh, under this precedent. So I think you could see both political sides, liberal and conservative, finding uh, some of their favorite things uh, being overturned under this president. Well, maybe we should pivot then towards uh, Trump v. Hawaii. The travel ban finally has its day in court. I mean, after the initial introduction back in January of 2017, sparked a deluge of legal challenges, waves of protests. Um, Legal challenges emanated from Maryland, I believe, D.C. Um, And in this particular case, most importantly, Hawaii. It underwent a sequence of changes. It was revised once after the first wave of challenges, almost made it to the Supreme Court, um, but was actually revised a second time. And it's that third version that finally made its way to the court. Um, Lots of complex issues. There's sort of the nature and limit of U.S. immigration law. We have these issues related to the Establishment Clause um, and some complicated sort of national security considerations uh, related to all of this. Could you could you give me a sense of of how all of this has shaken out uh, and, and what this means for the Establishment Clause, which seems to have a number of complicated things associated with uh, the rulings that have pertained to it in the past? Absolutely. So the, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause obviously are, are what protects our religious liberty and prevents the government from discriminating against us based on religion. And I have to say that uh, case law, jurisprudence about the Establishment Clause, has always been much more of a mess 
than uh, free, the free speech clause. It's much more confusing and contradictory. Uh, you know, I, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but most of the immigration lawyers I know, I don't think we're surprised by the outcome of the immigration law parts of this case. You know, that a lot of people were challenging the travel ban on the theory that federal immigration law didn't permit it, that it was beyond the power of the statute. And that didn't seem to be a very strong argument. I don't know many people who thought that was correct. The real heart of the case, both, I think, in terms of national policy and our, and our feelings about what it means to be an American, and I think in, in terms of the biggest dispute, is the Establishment Clause issue. The argument that the reason the administration uh, enacted this ban and singled out these countries was to go after Muslims. And so the heart of what was before the court and what the court decided was this. If you've got a law that doesn't mention religion and does not explicitly go after one religion or another, how do you treat evidence that the reason for the law was discriminatory? How do you treat uh, Donald Trump's series of statements that I think most people viewed as hostility towards Muslims? And I think that was the right interpretation. So that was the, the dilemma before the court. Um, and what happened here is something that you see in a lot of constitutional cases, and that is you win or lose the case not in applying a test, but in choosing which test to apply. What I might mean by that is this. The court had to, t had to decide you know, what, what standard does this law have to live up to to survive under the Establishment Clause? Given the argument that it's religiously discriminating, what standard does it have to meet? And the key decision that the majority made here was that it only had to meet something called the rational basis test. Uh, basically, the rational basis test says that if you can imagine any argument that's plausible and not obviously unconstitutional, supporting this law, then it survives. It doesn't matter whether the actual reasons were something else. And almost every law passes the rational basis test. It's almost impossible to fail it. So what the majority said here was because the decision of who to let into the country or not is so uh, uniquely connected to the sovereign powers of the government, to national defense, to all these things that are uniquely government function, they really aren't subject to very close review. And therefore, the most lenient test is going to get applied to it. And once they made that decision, that was the end of the case, because it was obvious that anyone's going to pass the rational basis test. So here, even though there was very powerful, and I have to say, uh, to my mind, very upsetting as an American evidence that the reason for the travel ban was animosity towards Muslims. Uh, even though there was that very powerful evidence, the court said, well, that, that evidence doesn't control here because there are arguments that you can make uh, that support this ban for non-religious reasons. And the dissent, uh, I think, pointed out very well that a lot of the reasons the administration offered seemed unconvincing or contra contradictory, not well supported by evidence, uh, not really based on reliable studies, that this way of protecting the country, banning people from these seven countries, didn't make a lot of sense. 
But that was really sort of once you got to the rational basis test, a fruitless argument. Because again, any, any number of completely idiotic laws that are badly considered pass the rational basis test. It's, it's not a test that allows the judge to weigh whether this is a good idea or not. It doesn't let the judge second guess. So I think that uh, it's alarming uh, that the court is saying basically there's a very wide array of decisions that the government can pretty much be explicitly racist in their discussion of why the law is necessary so long as the law is on its face neutral and so long as someone can construct an argument that's not racist for why the law might be a good idea. One argument I heard building building on that is that this decision essentially means that the president, any president, can invoke national security to say that anyone or any group of people cannot be uh, allowed into the country. Do you think that's a correct summation? Not exactly, because such a law might not be neutral on its face. So here, it was a ban on people from certain countries. Uh, it wasn't a ban on its face on Muslims. So if you had a ban on Muslims, that would present a different situation. That would not be a facially neutral law. That would be a law that specifically considered the religion of the people it was targeting. And then you'd have to see what test the Supreme Court decided to apply. It might still not be the most strict test because of the way the court emphasized that that sort of decision is uniquely in the power of the government. But it would present a different situation than the one the court considered here. As they were justifying the travel ban under this third iteration, they seemed to describe it much more with respect to the deliberations that were taking place uh, across the executive branch and an actual assessment of what they perceived to be deficiencies and whatever the processes were that were being used in specific foreign countries. They actually took off one of the predominantly Muslim countries and, and the ban uh, added to other countries that weren't Muslim countries. So I suspect that might have something to do with kind of the, the different treatment here. Um, but with respect to sort of notorious Supreme Court rulings uh, that, that are a bit shameful, uh, the Karamatsu decision was also overturned by this decision. Is overturned the right word in this context? I guess. I mean, this was kind of a reach. Karamatsu, of course, is the infamous case that endorsed FDR's internment of Japanese Americans and really with pretty much a hand wave about national security makes it necessary. And what happened here was the dissent was saying this is an outrageous decision that brings to mind you know, dark days like Korematsu. And the majority kind of shot back at that by saying it's not like Korematsu. Those were citizens. There was no legal basis to do what they did. Here, it's non-citizens. It's the government's unique power. And oh, by the way, everyone thinks Korematsu is terrible and it's not good law, and we hereby affirm that it's bad law. So I think it was more a rhetorical move than a legal one. Um, and I think it was kind of, uh, you know, I, I called it, and this is a little uncharitable, I called it virtue signaling. Uh, basically, the majority saying, we're not bad guys. Look here, we agree Korematsu is bad law. But nonetheless, the president of the United States can revile people based on religion. And 
issue a rule that has the effect of banning many of the country. And as long as you come up with a neutral reason for it, it's going to survive. Yeah. And and you mentioned um, sort of virtue signaling that often has a sort of pejorative connotation to it. But it, it is worth mentioning that this is the sort of thing that under any other circumstance, uh, we might see this as a total victory for the president. Um, but in both the majority opinions um, and in the dissenting opinion, there was a hell of a lot of condemnation uh, and, and shade being thrown at the president um, in these decisions. Um, and uh, it, it was not at all subtle uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and some of that was coming from uh, Justice Kennedy, who was on his way out, who the president actually had a number of charitable things to say um, uh, about him today. Um, I, I wonder if you could maybe shed some light on the the uniqueness of the circumstance we find ourselves in where seemingly everyone uh, on in the Supreme Court sees it as their role at this point to to kind of talk about civility and the need for the executive of the country to conduct himself in a di- in a different sort of way and to use different language um, but also about just the legacy of Justice Kennedy as as he's on his way out well you know first of all as as to the statements made about the president's rhetoric uh, certainly, the dissent is very strong. I don't. I don't find the majority opinion or concurring opinions to be as strong as other people do. But I do think there's a big difference between you know, politicians and judges, and I, I don't think that there's anyone on this court who seemed happy, uh, who, who conveyed that this wasn't any problem that the president would use rhetoric like this. Uh, But, I mean, the the proof is in the pudding, and the majority wound up basically saying it it doesn't matter. And all the, you know, the the moral scolding for many of them doesn't really have ultimately much of an effect. Uh, So I can see why people would find that cold comfort. You know, with respect to Kennedy, um, he's been the, the classic swing vote for a long time now. He's been the person that advocates aim at to try to convince him to be the fifth vote in cases. And he has been in a number of cases. Um, I don't know that he has particularly distinguished himself on any particular judicial doctrine or issue. Uh, you know, certainly he was the key vote on some very important gay rights decisions. And uh, the key vote on some others that I don't think you can categorize so easily. Uh, but I don't know that his departure leaves some sort of lack of any particular judicial philosophy. Um, people on both sides have been very frustrated with him. And I think that's because so many people really want judges to think about things the way they do, to think uh, be outcome determinative and to have political views as opposed to judicial views. And many, many judges simply don't. Would John Roberts be the potential swing vote now? He could be. And he's a good illustration, I think, of why the gloom and doom I heard today uh, about Kennedy retiring and who, who else Trump might appoint to be a little overstated. So, um, you know, yes, liberal presidents point more liberal people, conservative presidents appoint more conservative people. But the very process of becoming someone who might be appointed to the Supreme Court has sort of a leveling effect. I mean, most of these people went to Harvard or Yale. Um, they all went through careers that got them to the point where they were on a different court someplace. 
that has sort of a, a homogenizing effect. And the difference between, you know, even a Thomas, who's probably the most, in a way, radical member of the court, and the most liberal member of the court, uh, that difference is a lot smaller than the difference between, say, you know, a Trump and an Obama. So the the differences in in judges uh, are are less pronounced than the differences in politicians. With Roberts, you saw someone who was widely thought he would be a very conservative judge and a very reliable conservative vote. But on a number of occasions, he's disappointed the conservatives. Uh, they're they're still very angry at him at his uh, saving vote on Obamacare and on a number of other cases. And he's he's demonstrated that he's not the type of reliable um, uh, political vote that they hoped he would be. There have been a lot of judges in the Supreme Court's history who were picked thinking they'd be reliable ideologically who weren't, and even some who became the exact opposite of what was expected of them. I think it was Eisenhower who said that, you know, he of, of Earl Warren, and I regret ever naming that son of a bitch to the bench. Um, so... People really surprise you when they get on the bench. I think that the responsibility of it, the freedom and independence of it, and the difference of it might lead them in directions that people with a political mind don't necessarily expect. So although you know, I, too, am concerned uh, you know, as a civil libertarian about whom Trump may appoint, I also know that the people who have uh, defended civil liberties on the court over the years, you haven't been able to reliably categorize them based on conservative or liberal. Uh, liberals have not been reliable in defending the rights of the accused in criminal cases on Fifth or Fourth Amendment cases. And conservatives have sometimes been some of the best advocates on the Fourth Amendment or the First Amendment. Uh, you know, the, the example that comes to mind is Justice Scalia very vigorously defending the First Amendment in the flag burning cases. So I think the political, especially the sort of the hyper political cable news, Twitter type of interpretation of these things uh, really oversimplifies the factors that are going into it. As someone who has followed your contributions on Twitter, you, you're one of the people who makes that a valuable place to, to hang out and not one that just makes me sad. Um, I, I wonder if I can, this is an indulgence here. Um, sure. My own approach to the Constitution tends to be a, a relationship of convenience. Uh, it's the sort of thing where I, I look at it and I think, you know, if this makes it more difficult for people to erode away certain things that are very important to me, then great. Um, but my instincts about the Constitution are probably more in line with something that Hayek wrote. He describes governments having used constitutional means to uh, do various things that the Constitution never intended for them to do. I wonder what your own sort of sensibility about this dynamic process of us trying to preserve our freedoms by balancing powers uh, throughout government with this this document um, that's subject to interpretations that do tend to change over time, um, especially in a period where we find ourselves potentially having the courts move in a direction that I suppose might be a bit more originalist. Are you optimistic uh, about the capacity of the Constitution to actually deliver on the promise of ensuring liberty? Or is it something that uh, 
that requires perhaps some refinement or do we need something else in order to, to get there? So it's a bit, a bit grand and philosophical. Okay. So I, my perspective is not really a philosophical or theoretical or academic one. I'm very much a practitioner. So my perspective comes from being a, a criminal lawyer, first a prosecutor and then a defense lawyer for 18 years and a civil litigator increasingly in First Amendment cases. And I very much view the Constitution um, as a limit on government power and a bulwark between government power, which, which may be an expression of popular will, and individuals. And I think that its power in doing so has trended towards you know, more protective of the individual, certainly over the last century. Uh, you know, there there are um, bumps in the road, but it has gone in that direction. And I think that I see it not as something where we ever get to rest on our laurels, that the pressure to use popular will to impose government force on people is always going to be there. Um, the nature of the pressure and what type of will gets imposed will change, but the pressure will always be there. And some of the tools we give our government to do things we like will always be used eventually to do things we don't like. So to me, it's it's never a fight where you get to rest on your laurels. It's never a fight you get to end. It's it's regrettably a little bit like the modern war on terrorism. It's not a war that you anticipate ever ending. Uh, so optimistic, I, I'm optimistic about the continuing fight, but I acknowledge it is one. Right now, I think the law is excellent on the First Amendment. Uh, it's about as strongly defended as it ever has been legally. I think that um, that rights of criminal defendants have gradually eroded since the war in court. That worries me. And I think we need a country that sees more why those are essential to all of us and not just uh, to bad people. And I think a number of other things are in flux. And... Uh, I think that the key is, to me, taking it seriously as a process, recognizing it as a set of rules uh, to be applied and respected and not merely as something to be gamed or gotten around. So, you know, when people talk to me about the Kennedy uh, retirement and what I'm worried about right now, I am less worried about this president um, appointing someone conservative uh, to the court, even if that person is going to make rulings on uh, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment that I don't like. I'm more worried about the general increasing disrespect for the rule of law and the legal process. I'm more worried about attacks on that. So to me, when the president undermines the rule of law, undermines the concept of judicial review, you know, suggests that judges uh, can't be neutral on a case because of where their parents came from, things like that. I think that is far more of a threat to the constitutional order than any one judge that the president might appoint. Although it, it creates a great opportunity for you to be able to uh, have some eloquent exposition on the necessity of people having an appreciation for these wonderful tools. Uh, this is uh, perhaps the tree of liberty being refreshed by a bit of incivility on the part of the president. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Ken, uh, enormously grateful for, for your time. I don't know if you've got any sort of closing sentiments here, but I, I thought that was a, a great one. Uh, my only closing sentiment is that, you know, sometimes at the end of the term, there's a surge of public interest in the Supreme Court. 
even when it's about cases that we're worried about, I think it's a good thing. I don't think people know as much about law as they should. It's not rocket science. Even a dummy like me can get through it. <laughs> I, would be thrilled. I would be thrilled if more Americans took more time to get as immersed in it and the ideas in it as they do in, in you know, congressional, presidential, senatorial politics. It's there for the taking. They're fascinating issues. They're fascinating stories from our history about these rights and these parts of the Constitution. And, you know, part of my goal, part of my project in writing and speaking is to get people more involved in that. I like to refer to myself as a popat libertarian. When, <laughs> uh, when I am forced to pick a political tribe, uh, you may not uh, you may not appreciate that or accept that uh, nomination. But um, I, 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 I concur with Camille that you uh, are in generally a voice for uh, both good humor and good sensibilities. Your contributions are a net good for us all. Even even those that might disagree with you can certainly take a, a good deal of uh, your insight. Well, I appreciate it. It was I really loved your show. and It was a great pleasure to be on it. He's expecting us to call, right? Yeah, I told him it would be around eight, but he's he's sitting at home. I'm sure he'll be fine. OK, I was calling. I've reached Damon Root. Uh, we're not going to leave a message. Uh, well, Ken was very generous. I mean, he gave us like a full 45 minutes, which we were about 10, 15 minutes late. So it's not too yeah, bad. No. I, so it was pretty funny, though. Uh, he, he, for some reason, I wrote, as I always do in my booking emails, the exact time, PM, Eastern time, and Pacific time as well. And for some reason, he took it as AM. And he, oh, and he, seven eight. He thought he thought I was calling him at four thirty a.m. in LA time because <laughs> he, he kept saying weird stuff like that's kind of early for me. Uh, but then yeah. he agreed to do it. Yeah. And so when I woke up this morning, he, I got an email from him saying, yeah. "Hey, I still haven't gotten your email about what we're talking about, but I'll wake up at four in the morning to check." And so I was like, "Ken, PM." <laughs> and he's like, well, and he was like, "Oh, I I don't know why I missed that in your five previous emails where you specifically say that." <laughs> well, you heard him say that he. Oh my gosh, I just broke the mic. I was trying to tighten this up, Jack, and I I, I undid it. But it's cool. I can fix it. I can fix it. You don't have to come in. Yeah, the only the 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 Nawaz thing. I mean, I guess. Well, he listens to the podcast, so he's a, he's a fan of what we do. Yeah. Yeah, he was going to come. He wanted to be here. No, I mean, I could. I mean, he's he's a dude, but he's got kids. He's got young kids. Yeah. And he works. I mean, yeah, he, he was when he was he, emailing me earlier, he was like going into court. Yeah. And, and it's like, I don't know how he's one on Twitter as much as he is, but it's good, crazy. good at Twitter. Yes. Very he, good. <laughs> very good at Twitter with obviously limited time um, yeah. and a full time job and manages to stay abreast of all of the things that are happening. Yeah. For me, like that, my number one challenge in life mm. is keeping up with the news cycle, especially because my day job doesn't actually require that of me. I My day job actually does require it, and I still have a hard time. I, 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 it's, I, it's I, I, I produce a weekly magazine, yeah. so, so even today, I was buried deep in uh, immigration stuff, uh -huh. order stuff. Yeah. And then new stuff happened. Yeah. A judge, a judge in California made a ruling. And, yeah, yeah. and, and then there was that second immigration vote. Totally missed yeah. that. Like, uh, uh, I mean, it was, oh, it, it, I said, yeah, I didn't even know. Everybody, everybody knew it was going to go down in flames. It was, the, right. it was the moderate bill. Yeah. Um, I knew they were going to vote on it, but when I filed my piece, uh, I guess the vote had just come down and my editor's like, why didn't you mention the vote? Yeah. How was I supposed to mention the vote? I'm writing this thing. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, Jack, are we recording this? 
Oh, okay. This is good. This is good. We're talking. Uh, no, yeah. this is good. Um, <laughs> I, I was just going to say, we just put this in. Uh, um, did you see the uh, Andrew Sullivan piece from Friday? I, I this got, past Friday? I, I did, yes. I, yeah. I, I got to confess, I didn't. I've only seen exper- excerpts of it, uh-huh. I, I, and I'm aware of the head exploding outrage over it. Yeah. Um, well, this is always the case. Yeah, every yeah. single Andrew, every I, single week, there's I, head exploding and outrage. I mean, but if you notice, like Andrew, Andrew used to, Andrew's thing for years, uh-huh. you know, he was the blog father. He put out so much content yeah. every day, and now he just puts out one scorching hot take <laughs> every two weeks. Like, well, it's, uh, it's uh, always three parts. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There, yeah it's three subjects, yeah. but only, but only every. Everyone just only one pays post. attention to the first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my life would be so much better if every single Friday for the rest of eternity, Kanye West released a new seven track <laughs> album. And <laughs> uh, oh, oh, OK, cool. Damon, I'm here. Hey, How's Damon. It going? Good. Sorry, I missed the uh, call just a second ago. That, that's OK. We were we were just talking about um, Andrew Sullivan's piece from last week, which I'm, I'm not sure if you've read. Um, and we are, in fact, recording this now. So yeah, Andrew. Chance we just use this and then figure out what the hell we're going to do here. Andrew, uh, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, the bit the bit that I feel made people's heads really explode was just give Trump his wall. Yeah. Which I feel like is not a new idea. That's why I'm surprised that everybody flipped out about that one. Yeah. I mean, Democrats were literally pushing that as a as a compromise. Like, let's give him his wall because it's never going to get built anyway. And then we get, uh, you know, the dreamers taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, da- Damon, I don't know if you saw that. Did you see it? I've not had a chance to read that piece yet. Okay. That's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> no worries. I was going to say, though, briefly, um, since we have the Andrew Sullivan thing there and huh? we were talking about it, um, and you, you don't have to, to weigh in on this if you're not inclined to, uh, Damon, because I know you haven't read it, um, was that the, the sentiment um, that Andrew was expressing was that, you know, of course, he condemns all of the most awful and egregious things that Donald Trump has done and the really nasty rhetoric and him appealing to sentiments um, that are less than seemly. Mm-hmm. So unseemly, less than seemly. Um, but he also thinks that in terms of actually taking some sort of affirmative steps that ensure that there are not violations of human rights in terms of U.S. Um, immigration policy, that it is incumbent upon Republicans and, yes, even Democrats to sort of get their asses in line and perhaps find a way to create some legislation that might actually resolve some of these issues. And while I oftentimes on this program like advocate for you know, political intransigence and the gridlock that is created in Washington, D.C., it is most certainly true that Democrats and Republicans finding a way to narrowly work together to try and advance legislation that could materially improve the circumstance on the border for people who are there dealing with ICE, who are in these camps, that they should all have an incentive to want to fix that. And Mm -hmm. perhaps you don't have to give Trump his wall in order to achieve that. Maybe you kind of sort of do in some kind of incremental way that he never, ever actually gets at the wall. I don't know. But the notion that legislators ought to legislate on things like that is one that I think is important and worth beating the drum about. Um, The other sentiment, um, the other thought that I had after reading the piece, and it's something that just kind of dawned on me and hit me really hard, was, um, and this, uh, I I saw someone else um, write a piece that made me think about this as well, but 
you know, the summer of 2014, when we were having the refugee crisis in the United States, is also the summer of Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And I remember all of the attention that we gave to that story. I remember talking about that like live on air and we're watching these these protests in the streets and these intense clashes between civilians and police. And we had these extensive conversations about those issues. Um, and it's astonishing that it's only now, you know, many years removed, four years removed from those events that we're actually paying close attention to some of the really sort of gut-wrenching images that emerged from the milieu of that moment with respect to the refugee crisis and the way that the United States responded. And the, the insight there isn't so much that Obama is terrible and Trump is terrible. They're all equally terrible. It's, I think it perhaps has more to do with us. And I was thinking about myself in that context and the degree to which Donald Trump causes us to focus on issues mm -hmm. in a way that we might not have otherwise focused on them. Um, and as I kind of mentioned to Ken, as we were punching out there, there there's something about that that I think is incredibly useful um, that we probably ought to be keying in on uh, a little bit more. Well, what, might not be, what might not be useful is that while we focus on these issues, we don't exactly focus on them rationally. No. And um, <clears throat> a lot of hysteria. Yeah. And to be to be incredibly boring and agree with you, uh, it's, I'm gen it's never it's uh, never boring. I'm it's always wonderful. I'm generally pro gridlock myself. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's pretty widely accepted uh, on a bipartisan level that our current immigration regime is terrible. Uh -huh. Nobody is happy with it. Uh -huh. There's a great deal of suffering. There's a great deal of illegal illegality. And I feel like both of these things can be rectified with a good deal of, of compromise. Of course. Uh, and you can, so, you can you be know. a restrictionist and not think it's a good idea to pe keep people in cages on the border. Sure. And like you, you can and totally be that. That's totally reasonable. And you can be pro-increasing uh, legal uh -huh. immigration exponentially yep. and also say, yes, we should devote resources to actually uh, enforcing the border. Processing people yeah. on the borders is hard. And even, you know, I don't know I don't know that I would necessarily support this, but something like E-Verify uh, that makes it harder for undocumented immigrants to gain employment in the United States is a way of discouraging. It's a way You're of discouraging. A way of discouraging illegal mm. immigration without putting people in cages and without, you know, breaking up families. It yeah. is, it, it, there's a, there's a, it, that's that's just that's a slightly more humane way of doing it. Yeah. It makes 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 things a little harder for them. So but the uh, with, 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 uh, real quick, the, yeah. um, um, you know, the cages that were there under Obama are the same cages that were are there under Trump. And it's just not as as Matt Welch, our comrade, made it very clear. It's not it's just not true that nobody was uh, complaining about it under Obama. That's true. There, there were libertarians and there were people on, you know, the pretty far left. There were activists. There yeah. were professional yeah. policy people yeah. who were very engaged on these issues. And there were even some people in Congress who yeah. were talking about these issues. And the and the president of the United States was responsive to some of those things. Eventually, yes. When he had, <laughs> when when he had very little to to fight for, and he was you know you know running out the clock on his uh, his second term, uh, but it was a big action uh, to the extent that there was any dissent in the Democratic ranks at the 2012 convention. It was a big deal. You know, the immigration was a big deal. Uh, that Obama was the deporter in chief. Uh, so the so yes. Yeah, so while Trump makes us focus on this issue in a way in a broader sense in the way that it wasn't focused on under Obama, I feel like there is we are less likely to have. Constructive uh, dialogue on this because uh, a good deal of the Republicans who might have been swayed 
under less uh, loud circumstances, uh-huh. feel like they need to dig their heels in because Trump is more popular with the Republican base than they are. Yeah. And I feel like Democrats won't accept any of their own past culpability in in this crisis. Uh-huh. And they are increasingly going to towards uh, no enforcement at all as the de facto policy, which you know, it, it's, you know, as some, you know, to, to, to hardcore libertarians that might be music to your ears, but it's not really sincere. Like, I don't, yeah. believe, I don't believe that if the Democrats controlled Congress or if there was a democratic president, they'd be, they'd be supporting that. I think it's just a Trump reaction. Yeah. I, I'm glad we got to get this out there without Matt here to talk, to say, what about ism to me? <laughs> um, the, it, it's just that some of the hysterical outrage is, is worth, it's worth sneering at mm-hmm. because if that's all you've got, Motherfuck you. Hmm. Um, so there there's we plenty, are. Yeah, plenty of reason to be out. Very eloquent. But but but, but in this in this particular case, if if you actually want practical change, uh-huh. uh, and you have plenty of Republicans who, for the first time, are disgusted by Trump. Yeah. What you need to do is catch those guys right now and yeah. women and not, you know, and not make them f- go further entrenched into Trump land uh, by, you know, calling them all Nazis. Yeah. Um, well, to pivot away from that and back to sort of our uh, our, our judicial extravaganza, um, we are joined on the phone by our very good friend from Reason, Reason Magazine, uh, Damon Root, who tracks the courts, who tracks the Supreme Court in particular, and has all sorts of wonderful, thoughtful insights on the current goings on. Uh, with respect to the Supreme Court and some of the decisions that we've had handed down, um, but has also been tracking very closely um, the latest developments with respect to Justice Kennedy. So, Damon, thank you for joining us. Also, uh, also the noted author of the book Overruled. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry for not, for not plugging your book. And, mm-hmm. and you can feel free to plug. No, thank you. Plug whatever the, yeah, you yeah, like. Get the plug in right <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's great. It's great to great to talk to you. Yeah. yeah. And I was hoping you'd make it here in the studio, but obviously you got a bit derailed because of this, uh, this development. This is kind of your beat. So I totally understand you needing to be somewhere so you can focus on this. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps talk a little bit about the, the legacy of Justice Kennedy from your standpoint and what this means for the Supreme going forward and i said supremes like diana ross and people, uh, people refer to them as the Supremes. Yeah, i think that's good uh, yeah I, I like to imagine them all in sequin blouses i think yeah, that's good with, with one mic all yeah. dancing in front of one mic yeah, yeah. do they sing well when well, will you i know, see you, you again what's going on under the road <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was always, the Shirelles, that's huh? the only thing that i wonder uh, so when when will i see you again as the shirelles i think so what the hell did diana ross and the supreme sing um is that i will survive uh, no, I will survive as Gloria Gaynor. See, I don't know anything. I have no idea. When will I see you again is the three degrees. We were way off. Yeah. What do you, <laughs> do you know, Damon? That's, that's where we're actually going to start. I don't know the three degrees. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know what Diana know. Ross and the Supreme saying. I, I don't care. Uh, so, Damon, yes, Justice Kennedy. Where did our love well, go? You know, I think that his, you know, his impact on modern American law and politics is, is it's almost beyond reckoning. You know, you can, you can name every... Uh, major issue that's come before the court or just kind of been uh, broiling throughout American politics. And Kennedy is, is, uh, you know, may have cast a deciding vote in the case. His fingerprints are sort of all over the arguments. Um, so this is true for, for gay rights and abortion. It's true for affirmative action, true for uh, Obamacare. He's the one who read the, uh, the dissent from the bench. There was a joint dissent filed by the conservative justices and he's the one who read it. Um, 
gun gun control, gun rights, eminent domain. I mean, you name it. It's just it's sort of everywhere. And I think we're going to be sort of dealing with thinking through his legacy for for a long time. I think he's probably the most influential jurist alive today, mm. just in terms of sheer impact of his influence. You know, he was this audience of one for every lawyer who was approaching the bench because of just through this happenstance of history where you have this bench where there's a four pretty much, you know, uh, reliable, if you put in quotes, conservative four pretty much reliable, put in quotes, liberal. And then Kennedy, who is this moderate conservative with liberal tendencies, or maybe you want to say it the other way around. It kind of depends on the issue. And so, you know, the arguments would be made to him. They're crafted to him for the particular things that he was interested in. And so he just had this, you know, um, tremendous influence. I mean, you talk about sort of the great man theory of history. I mean, he's he's got a proof of that. You know, it's just through through the sheer luck of when he's appointed and and how the court is made up. Um, so it's it's just it's just extraordinary to have someone like that step down at this particular moment because the. You know, the, the future course of, of American law could could just change dramatically in a number of different directions. And so the, the I think the coming confirmation fight over him will probably be about as as bitter as you could imagine, even though assuming the Senate Republicans move it, move it along very quickly and get it get it done by the end of the summer before the midterm elections. They can pretty much appoint whoever they want if all the Republicans stay in line because there's a very slim Senate majority in their favor. But it's going to be an absolute, you know, knock, knock down, drag out brawl, uh, you know, in the meantime. Uh, the a couple of things related to that. Um, you you mentioned that he sort of this transformative figure is also what Reagan's third choice um, for the spot. He was the third. Yeah, he was a third pick. Yeah. Bork was yeah. Bork, the first one brought, brought to us by marijuana, marijuana prohibition in part <laughs> since the second second choice was knocked out because he uh, acknowledged that he had used this sweet yeah. Mary Jane. Doug, Doug Ginsburg. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like a different America when, uh, <laughs> when that was something that that would just, you know, disqualify you from a from a major office. And I think Clarence Thomas basically admitted to smoking. Experimenting was always what people said uh, with marijuana in college. And he gets on the court just a few few years later. So, yeah. So Kennedy's the third choice for this seat that had been bitterly fought over. And um, basically it becomes sort of his court. I mean, this is really an end of an end of an era. Uh, so you can kind of pick the issue that you're most interested in and just think about what this might mean uh, going forward, depending on who he's replaced. I think the, the the biggest thing everyone's talking about, of course, is abortion, because although uh, Kennedy did not always vote the way that the that uh, pro-choice activists would like, he generally, when it came down to it, he was he he reaffirmed the central holding of Roe v. Wade that, that, that the right to abortion is a fundamental right under the Constitution. And he always stuck with that. So if you get a conservative uh, who replaces him, who who sees Roe v. Wade differently and doesn't think abortion is a constitutional right that should be protected, and many of them don't, and many of them would like to see that case overturned, you know, there there could potentially be a shift in that direction. So that's something everyone's talking about. But also, but also remember, he's the author of the majority opinion in Citizens United, so he has this lasting impact on free speech. That's one of the most controversial, you know, decisions, obviously, in recent years, and reviled on the left, celebrated on the right for that. Um, so it's it's you know it's it's just this this massive sort of influence. Um, and then I guess just to maybe focus on the libertarian angle a little bit, this is a jurist who libertarians really dislike for two cases. Kilo versus City of New London, and then uh, Gonzalez v. Rage, both from 2005, where Kennedy joined Justice John Paul Stevens' majority opinions, which were uh, in favor of eminent domain abuse and Kilo, and then in favor of uh, federal regulatory power 
rather than state medical marijuana in uh, in the Rage case. And so uh, libertarians have been sort of shaking their fists at Kennedy ever since. But yet, at the same time, I think libertarians have to acknowledge that he has been the one justice in the last several decades who has exhibited the basic libertarian mix of what you could call social liberalism, fiscal conservatism. You know, he's the guy who is in favor of gun rights and gay rights. And so his replacement may not have that sort of quasi-libertarian quality, could be much more in a traditional social conservative mold. And so that would be something obviously liberals would be upset about, but libertarians might be upset about that too. Uh, you know, you've described Justice Kennedy as, uh, you know, arguably the most important justice of his era. And you've talked a little bit about the good and the bad um, from the libertarian point of view. If you could, what is the Justice Kennedy legal worldview? Like, how, like does he have any particular, um, you know, legal principle that will, you know, be studied in the future as, you know, this, this was the, the Kennedy model? Well, he returned again and again to ideas of liberty and equality. Uh, those are especially touchstones in his in his gay rights jurisprudence. And he writes he's the author of all four of the Supreme Court's um, big decisions affirming gay rights. And you can just sort of trace a line from Romer v. Evans, the first one, through to um, the, the, the decision recognizing the constitutional right to gay marriage a couple of years ago. And uh, so I, that so it'll be some of those ideas um, will be what what people will look to because that's what's spelled out in those cases. So that's the majority opinion. That's that's what lower courts are following. Uh, a, a very frequent um, uh, criticism directed at Kennedy and one that that I you know I share. I think that this is true is that he could be a kind of a muddy writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he spoke in kind of grandiose language. And um, and also he was you know, he was a he was an audience, as I said before, he's an audience of one for lawyers. So he you know, he he didn't necessarily need to you know, if 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 it was if it was something if it was to say, you know, the gay marriage case um, and and Kennedy is going to provide the fifth vote. You know, and he's also the senior justice, so he probably gets to assign the opinion to himself. He's going to write it the way he writes it, and if the the other justices are going to they're going to who agree with the outcome are going to they're going to sign on to it, and then maybe if they want to make some of their own unique points, they'll do it in a concurrence or something. So there's 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 not a there's not a a single straight line to his jurisprudence. It's it's difficult to characterize because it's it's you know I've used the word mercurial for him um, before, and it's so it's there's you know depend on certain issues based on how he how he ruled and what he what he'd said before. You could you could get a sense of where he would be going and what kind of arguments would work with him. But um, a you know a, 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 in terms of a broad view, I mean this is he's not a Justice uh, Scalia who. Was there are a lot of faults to how Scalia did this, but Scalia was was at least attempting to root his jurisprudence in the original meaning of the Constitution and sort of return to that. I think he that you know he didn't always practice what he preached, you know, to say the least. But I mean that was something that he that he returned to. And Kennedy, it was a little more of some of the broader, you might say, the broader principles uh, that underline the American constitutional system. And you know, there you can there's some wiggle room mm-hmm. there. Um, and so it can, you know, it can it can take you different different directions. And um, when you have when you have a certain amount of, of of sway over what the outcome is, I mean, you know, there's you can you can imagine some predictable results from mm-hmm. that. Um, but certainly his the the writing style, the Kennedy writing style has been um, 
has been subject to much, much uh, criticism. Yeah, of for, including from Scalia, um, who referred to something as like uh, the sweet, sweet mystery of life uh, passage, um, <laughs> re- referring to something that he'd written. I, I wonder, and I don't want to sit on this too long, but I mean, you talk about potential consequences to his writing style and approach. I mean, part of at least in my own imagining, my unsophisticated interpretation of what's happening here is, you know, the, these decisions, uh, to the extent they're written in a way that ties them to other decisions and to original interpretation, you create these almost rhetorical finger traps, which if the justices are in fact yielding to precedent in a lot of circumstances, I believe the principle is stare decisis. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Damon? Yes. I could. I, yes. I feel very proud of myself. Um, then if you don't have those rather intricate rhetorical safeguards there, those bulwarks that someone has to kind of credibly tear down, um, or at least just have a strong enough majority to do it either way, um, then maybe the decisions that you're reaching aren't nearly as secure. I don't know if you've got a perspective on that, Damon, if that's likely to be something that we'll see, um, or if if you'll just let my uh, completely unlearned, uh, non-expert perspective stand unchallenged. Well, let me let me let me, let me maybe take it this way. Um, the, the the point about precedent is interesting because um, the Supreme Court that's the court that can overturn its own precedents, mm-hmm. and the court does that. And we saw that happen this week um, in the in the Janus case with uh, the compulsory union dues and the First Amendment issue. Uh, so every member of the court talks about the importance of precedents and precedents and following them and stare decisis and, and these things. And I, and I think they're all sincere about it, but then there's also the argument of, but there's a, there's a come some point when some of these precedents, are, you know, uh, we've, we all agree now that they're wrong, or maybe we say they were wrong the day they were decided, which is language that's, that's used to refer to Plessy versus Ferguson mm-hmm. and some of these really notorious rulings. Um, and, you know, and Kennedy was someone who, who, Kennedy was someone who was at the center of overturning a number of the court's precedents. And I think, yeah, you know, th- there's a lot of correctness to that. So one example is a case called Bowers versus Hardwick. And this was a case where the Supreme Court in uh, 1986, I believe it was, upheld a state ban on, uh, quote, homosexual conduct. This was an anti-sodomy law. It, it criminalized consensual sexual behavior between um, same-sex couples. And that's a decision that in Lawrence versus Texas, in Justice Kennedy's opinion, the court over overrules that, overturns it, he wipes that precedent, says it was wrong, day was decided, and it's, and it's wrong now. So I think one thing about Kennedy is, is that he's not going to be a justice when you're looking at his record who's associated the most with with um, keeping sort of stable precedents. In fact, he's, he was at the forefront of a number of big decisions where the court um, overturned something it had done before. And that's something that I guess it depending on your point of view on the individual case, um, you know, people who, who wanted that precedent upheld think it's terrible. But then everyone's jurisprudence typically allows for some precedent to be to be overturned. Damon, if we could uh, pivot to another Supreme Court case, Janus versus the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees. Some people are saying that this is literally the death of unions. Uh, there is an overturned precedent here. Um, how big is this? Is it is it really the death of unions, or is it um, something else entirely? Well, it's a it's a severe blow to to public sector unions. I mean, the the issue in this case was that since 19, a 1977 case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court has said that uh, uh, public sector union that, that excuse me got that government state governments as a condition of employment can require workers to pay a fee 
to public sector unions, even if they're not members. So if, if you know, I'm a public school teacher and I, I don't want to join the union, um, I still have to pay a fee. And the argument in that original case was that um, the union, you know, you may not be a member of the union, but the union still does the collective bargaining on behalf of all the workers. And so you're benefiting when they you know, negotiate a higher salary. And so you'd be a free rider if you didn't have to pay some sort of fee towards it. And that's what that precedent had said. And it's been around since 1977. And so that's overturned this week on, on First Amendment grounds. The argument is that this um, fee that you have to pay goes to the union. It's you know money is fungible; doesn't just stay in the in the little box for um, uh, co- collective bargaining activities. In fact, it goes to support union political speech that you may totally disagree with. In fact, if you weren't a member of the union, you probably didn't join for some of those reasons. So maybe you don't want to you know give money to the union's pro Hillary Clinton rally or you know or something like that. And it's com- it's it's compulsory speech. It's forcing you to speak. Uh, and that's what the what the Supreme Court said. This was not a a, a big surprise. This decision because um, just a couple of years ago, the court heard an identical case called Friedrichs, um, and Justice Scalia died while that case was before before the opinion came out. And um, I think there was no question that that was going to be five four against the unions then. So this week it's it's five four against the unions. Sort of two years later. So the the it's it's a blow. I mean, if you think about the financial benefits you get as a public sector union from uh, mandatory union dues as a condition of employment. I mean, so that that's a financial hit that could hurt. Um, I think, I think it will hurt them that the the people that were bringing this lawsuit um, in addition to the first amendment arguments, I think they, they, they were pretty open about the fact that they, they saw public sector unions as, as having some influence and some power that was, you know, that was used for detrimental purposes and they didn't mind seeing them taken down a peg. Um, now, the ruling doesn't apply to private sector unions because it's, it's dealing with the government, so it's a First Amendment case. So it's not the death knell of all unions in that sense. But I mean, I do think that if you're a if you're a public sector union supporter, you know, this is this was not a happy outcome for yeah, you. It is, it's the sort of thing that does feel quite obvious. Um, I will say that for me, sort of the funniest line um, from Kagan's uh, dissenting opinion uh, was when she described the previous status quo as striking a stable balance between public employees' First Amendment rights and government entities' interest in running their workforce as they thought proper. Um, and I thought to myself, yeah, sure. I suppose that's a stable balance. Did she they argue? get 100% of the money you don't want to pay them. You get to be very upset about it. This is a balance of did sorts. She, did she back that up with anything? Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a general a general argument that there are some competing interests here with respect to what the unions are actually able to obtain. As Damon was alluding to earlier, this sentiment that there are these benefits that are being accrued by mm-hmm. people who are sort of free riding on what the union is doing, but not really paying any dues. Um, but I, I also set this up in that way because I know Eugene Volok, um, who writes at the Volok Conspiracy, which is now at Reason and having been translated from the Washington Post, where it was previously at the Volok Conspiracy all on its own. But now it's at Reason. Um, but he actually disagrees with the sort of First Amendment free speech grounding for this. Damon, I wonder if you could help to put that into context a little bit and and perhaps give us some sensibility about this. As I, as I understand it, the general argument, and it's actually one that I, I found myself leaning towards even before I discovered that that was his perspective, um, that, you know, there isn't really a First Amendment issue here because there are plenty of circumstances where the government takes your money 
and perhaps subsidizes speech you might find objectionable, tax collection, et cetera. These things, these are things that government can do. There isn't any particular reason why they shouldn't be able to take a percentage of the money that they would have otherwise to pay you and subsidize some sort of speech. They're not forcing you to say anything. They're just taking your money, which they do in other contexts. Why, why is that wrong or why is that right? Or perhaps why didn't it ca- carry the day if you don't feel like sort of picking a fight with Eugene yourself? Well, it was, I mean, that, I think that's a pretty good summary of it. And, you know, Eugene, um, for, for people who aren't familiar with his work among your listeners is, is, is pretty hawkish on the first amendment and he's a recognized as a first amendment expert. Um, so it was interesting when, when he, he came out with that, um, with, uh, any, any sign on to an amicus brief urging, urging that position, the court to adopt that position. Um, and you know, the point that you, you know, you, you get charged all sorts of little, little things by, by the government in all sorts of ways, little fees and taxes and so forth. And, um, it's actually an aggressive and kind of, um, uh, newfangled, uh, interpretation of the first amendment to, to put it into that context. And I think there's no question, this is an aggressive, you know, first amendment challenge and, a, and an aggressive take on the first amendment. Um, but you know, there was the, the and had the court had a, a different makeup, it easily could have that that a, a view like that could have um, found five justices, but there's a there's an there's an appetite for a aggressive First Amendment analysis among what we consider the conservative block of the court right now. Um, I believe that that uh, Volokh's brief did get cited by the, uh, the by in the dissent, so it did it was it was in play. Those ideas were in play, but um, not enough to not enough to to win the day. You know, just go back to your original question. I mean, it's it's this is a this is a win for um, critics of critics of of the legal privileges that unions, public sector unions, have have enjoyed for some time, and it's and it's a loss for their supporters. So it's it's going to be one of these cases that your people are going to rally around. Um, I don't know if it's going to achieve sort of Citizens United level, um, you know, on on the left, but I think it's it's going to be something that's going to be part of the part of the you know the case against the uh, conservative Supreme Court. There was another case that dealt with Fourth Amendment rights. Some civil libertarians kind of think that it was a limited victory. Um, it, it, ostensibly, the court said that the the government needed to show probable cause uh, and get a warrant if it wanted over six days of your cell phone location data. Carpenter versus United States. But um, Roberts, I believe, wrote um, the majority opinion saying that, that still affirmed the government's right to uh, get any of your data from third parties, whether it's social media companies, Internet service providers or cell phone uh, companies. Um, so it seems like it's the 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 broad power of government to get any of your digital footprint anytime they want still exists. Well, I'm, I'm not, I think the, the ruling might be better from a, a civil liberties perspective than that. Um, so the, to set it up, the, 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 when the big questions has to do with something called the third party doctrine. And in a, in a couple cases from a few decades ago, uh, Smith and Maryland, the, the Supreme Court said that that um, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in information that you share with a third party. And so, one of those cases dealt with financial records with the bank. The other one was uh, was what's called a phone registry, uh, pen register. So the, the it basically recorded the numbers of your outgoing calls. But then you know you fast forward into this modern age where we're all walking around with smartphones in our pockets. And the information we're sharing with third parties um, includes, you know, our whereabouts, 
it could be very sensitive places we're visiting, whether it's political organizations, religious organizations, um, you know, you, you name it. I mean, just sort of every, every kind of the key to your whole uh, life could, you know, be, could be contained in that information. And if you go back, every time we back up our phones, we're giving our entire contact list to our phone companies, your, con- your contact list, every website you visited, the products you bought, um, you know, you, you know, you sort of name it. And also you're basically giving your location every time you're walking around, even when you're not using your phone, your phone is pinging off a cell phone tower. And so that is, that is creating, a a, a a, you know, a sort of a GPS like tracking on you. And so this, this case Carpenter versus United States dealt, dealt with those questions. And, and what had happened was that uh, Mr. Carpenter is accused of being part of the group of, um, group of people who are robbing uh, radio shacks and T-Mobile stores, you know, ironically enough. And the FBI, without a search warrant, they get 127 days worth of his phone records and they're able to trace his whereabouts back over this four month period, place him in the vicinity of these crimes he allegedly committed. And that information is used against him in court. And so he argues that if you, you know, you go to the Fourth Amendment, it says, you know, you have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures in your person, your facts, your papers. And he said that, look, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in my entire you know, uh, movements over, you know, 127 days that happened, you know, in the past. I mean, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy to think that the government can't just go, you know, reach into the past, get that information and and track my whereabouts during that time period. Um, So one of the questions in this case is, are these third party doctrine precedents? Like, how do we, how does the court apply them to this new technology? And the Supreme Court's been grappling with this question in a few cases in recent years, and and it's not done grappling with them. But what the court did say was that at least when it came to the this kind of me- metadata in your cell phone, uh, we are not going to extend the third party to, to this situation. So those those precedents, I think the uh, a really hardcore civil libertarian would like those precedents wiped out, wiped off the books. Uh, that wasn't before the court in this case, but but this court this decision does start to actually I think chip at the chip away at the foundations uh, of those rulings and start to and you know and and point out the ways that they're in conflict with this modern technology and that they're really not tenable. So I think if you look at the court's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in cases like Jones, which dealt with GPS tracking. Um, and ones dealing with thermal imaging of, of houses to search for, you know, possible drug growing and things like that. There's a there's a there's a there's a kind of a robust Fourth Amendment thing happening. Now, there's a lot of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. There's a lot of bad Fourth Amendment case law on the books. In fact, when you study the Fourth Amendment, you mostly learn all the exceptions that the court has you know carved out to it, especially dealing with automobiles and things like that. But there is there is something, I think, positive happening at the Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is a part of that. Justice Sotomayor is at the center of it. Um, Justice Scalia was part of it before he died. That's something that was not, he didn't really get enough credit for that. He was actually really, from a civil liberties point of view, really good on the Fourth Amendment. Um, And Sotomayor is kind of his heir. And then the other thing that's very interesting that happened in the Carpenter case, so the decision's five to four. Uh, the, The dissenters are Gorsuch, Alito, Kennedy, and Thomas. Gorsuch writes a dissent for himself, and then Kennedy writes the one for the other three. These two dissents are about, you know, they're night and day apart. Kennedy's dissent is basically says that, you know, the law enforcement needs this kind of power. They need to be able to go after, you know, the bad guys, whether it's terrorists or drug dealers or whatever. Plus, we have these third-party doctrine precedents 
They absolutely should be extended. There's no reason not to extend them. This case was an easy win for the government and the majority was crazy. Okay, so that's what Kennedy says. Gorsuch says, I prefer a different Fourth Amendment approach. I think these third-party doctrine cases are crazy. They, they don't make a lot of sense. But, you know, if you look at the, why don't we just go back to the Fourth Amendment? So he does this originalist analysis. He says, you look at the Fourth Amendment, it talks about your papers and your effects. Maybe we can think about your cell phone records as your papers or your effects. And when he was a uh, appellate court judge, he wrote an opinion where he talked about email as your papers or effects under the Fourth Amendment. So he's, he's actually, even though he dissents, he's also sketching out this, I think, very kind of libertarian view of privacy rights under the Fourth Amendment. And so if you and the only reason I, it, that he didn't join the majority opinion is because the majority did did say, you know, look, we're not going to extend the third party doctrine precedents, but also we're just going to leave them. We're not going to do anything about them. And, and Gorsuch would like, I think, then see them overruled. So he wrote a dissent. And the kind of the whole point of the dissent was to tell future litigants, when you bring one of these cases before us, raise these originalist arguments, call the third party doctrine into question and let us really grapple with it. So you actually have have six votes, really, for a pretty good um, Fourth Amendment outcome. They just kind of differ about how they would get there. Damon, I uh, think we're going to wrap it up here, uh, unless you've got any other uh, knowledge uh, that you want to drop on us about the Supreme Court and Kennedy and what's coming next. I mean, all, all hell is going to break loose. That's that's what's uh, that's what's coming next. All hell will break loose with respect to the fight for the nomination. Yeah. President Trump was very you know, kind to those of us who, who work on these issues. He released a list um, in 2016. And he has, and, and the White House said today that, that, that Kennedy's replacement is going to come from that list. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of interesting names on there. There, from my point of view, there's, there's a couple uh, justice, uh, judges or justices, either state Supreme Court or, or um, federal appellate judges who, who I like, who, um, who I think are, are good on a lot of issues that are important to me. There's names on that list that I, you know, I think would be very bad for the future of the Supreme Court. And would not be very happy to see. So it, it does depend on who it is. Uh, there's a lot of rumors about what the kind of the short list within the big list is. Um, I, you know, I'm, I haven't been able to track anything down as that yet. Um, but according to the White House, it's going to be one of these names they put forward. Um, so there's this interesting transparency uh, to the Trump administration, at least on this issue. Uh, this is sort of the one thing that the Trump administration has truly been successful at like the one thing that's working. And obviously, you know, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are are really, you know, responsible for all those successes by holding, you know, holding the seat open for uh, for Gorsuch and then also driving driving all of these uh, lower court nominees through. Um, and so by all hell breaking loose, I think it's the it's the political fight that's going to break out um, the I, I think that you can expect about as ugly uh, rhetoric about Whatever, whoever the nominee is, um, you know, the sort of the fight over Robert Bork will look like, you know, look like child's play. But can the Democrats even do anything now that the filibuster is gone and they're in the minority? And I know that there's, you know, um, obviously this time the reproductive rights litmus test will probably be as pronounced as it's ever been. If the if the vote happens before the midterms and and 51 Republicans hold the line, then the Democrats have have not can can raise 
holy hell, but can't stop it. As you say, the filibuster's gone. Well, so so, so if, if say McCain doesn't show up to, to Washington, it, even with 50, is that, isn't that enough? Well, if it was, if it were, if, if the vice president cast a, a tie-breaking vote, um, you would, you'd need, because the Senate is such a slim majority, it would need every, every Republican. And, um, so there's if the if the sort of if the if the Senate, if the Judiciary Committee and then the full Senate can can move this along, can stay in session over the summer and get it done, um, because the midterms could change the could you know flip the Senate um, from R to D. And if that happens, it'll be, you know, the, the it'll be <laughs> the Trump's nominee will never come to a vote. Um, so that's that's really kind of the race. But um, ultimately, if if the if the Senate Republican majority that we have now holds, then this nominee will get will get through whoever whoever the person is. It'll just be a, a bruising because they go they'll go through the confirmation. There'll be the votes. All of that'll happen. And, you know, who knows? You could pick off or depending on the nominee, as you say, if if someone's like, I don't want to you know put someone who's going to overturn Roe v. Wade on the Supreme Court and, you know, there, there, there are Republican senators who, in, in their heart of hearts, that's what they think. They don't necessarily say it. So it could, it could be very interesting. Um, the, the, to, to, be, to be quick, so I know you want to get out of here. The, the, the one, one thing to really look for is, is that um, there's real divisions among legal conservatives on criminal justice issues. So some are in the sort of Gorsuch mold, where when you get to the things dealing with, like, say, the Fourth Amendment or maybe civil asset forfeiture, some of these related issues, they are, you know, libertarians would, would cheer for them. And then there are other conservative, judicial conservatives and people on Trump's list who are in maybe the sort of the Jeff Sessions mold, where it's kind of very pro-law enforcement, um, very little patience for the, you know, the kind of the ACLU type, you know, arguments. And, um, you know, the, the names that are being rumored include people from both of those camps. So just an issue like that, um, I think that there's that's something that the Republican Party is somewhat divided on. So if nothing else, there, there's an opportunity to have a have a pretty, pretty significant uh, civic conversation and maybe education on that issue and other ones. Um, you know, I'm always very interested in in the ways that the legal conservatives are, are not a monolith. That's often reported that way, but there's really a lot of different factions and different things going on. Um, so that's, you know, that's something I'll be I'll be watching very closely for sure. Thanks a bunch, Damon. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column, 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 so, column, column. Richard Haas, earlier this week on MSNBC, um, one of many people who weighed in on the uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, encounter at a restaurant um, where she was asked to leave because she is a Trump supporter. Um, there have been numerous instances actually recently of uh, more, more than a Trump supporter. Like, yeah. A, someone who literally who works for literally the Trump administration. His yeah. One of the first landmark pieces of civil rights legislation was the public accommodations. 1964. And we fought for the right of Americans to be served, whether it was restaurants, hotels, and not to be denied on the basis of religion, national origin. There's a whole list of things. Now, right. politics, ironically enough, was not one of them. But what happened the other day violates the spirit of, of the Civil Rights Act <clears throat> of 1964. And what it doesn't mean we shouldn't be focusing on other things which are inherently more important. I hear you. But it just seems to me one, besides that, it's politically counterproductive. Totally. I do. I think your point is the big point. This is a degree. This is a, a descent of America into tribalism, and this is dangerous. 
One of the things we should have learned the last year and a half is we can't take things for granted in this country. Right. We should not take for granted the fact that this has essentially been a peaceful democracy and our differences have not, never gotten bigger than what we could handle in a peaceful way. This is the sort of thing that makes me uneasy about some of the trajectory of this country. So I think it's serious. I, I don't really have strong opinions about that particular owner's uh, action because it, it was a request based on the um, – he was, seemed to be trying to keep peace in his own business and I think made a business decision that it's better for me to acquiesce to the uh, requests from my, my staff who are really upset by this right now and mm -hmm. really don't want to – partake in this they, business. They don't want to serve her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hang on. I, I know you're going with this, but um, I think he made a business decision to exercise his own free association, uh -huh. which is the which is always the other end of the civil rights, you know, um, accommodation argument. Uh -huh. So uh, I don't even want to I don't even go down the Richard Haas rabbit hole because he's it's totally a, a historical and it's uh -huh. not even legally close to anything um, resembling re reality. But um, is this the death of civility uh, where, where when you've got such a polarizing uh, administration and let's be very, very clear about it. Every single press secretary tells lies uh -huh. in service of the administration. This is true. But, but you could make the case that this administration lies so pathologically that it's that it is destroying norms. Now, I know, you know, for an anarchist like yourself, destroying norms is not a bad thing. Uh, but, you know, to, to, if, 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 if that's the idea, if burning the whole thing down is the idea, you know, behind a lot of Trumpism, uh -huh. then perhaps things like you, who are literally the mouthpiece of this uh, administration, don't get to sit and have a cozy meal without being hassled every once in a while. Is that something that we should accept? Is that something that we should be forcefully rejecting? Is this is like where what is civility? Does civility matter? Uh, I don't I don't have an issue with folks de degrading the elected officials of, of the United States or people who work for them um, or, or people who work for them. Um, I mean, I, I think one has to certainly allow for that. Um, I, I certainly think that we should be able to do it within the confines of reason. I mean, one of the things about the resistance that I find most frustrating is the degree to which they have no real sense for where they are in history. Like the fact that you are not, in fact, marching down the street in lockstep with mm -hmm. Dr. King. You are living in 2018. This is a world that he has helped to create for you where you have a rich bevy of freedoms that you get to enjoy that most people throughout human history have not. Um, and we are like trying to perfect the union, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, and that is kind of amazing and remarkable. And you you actually have to acknowledge that as you're moving forward. And the... The confusion with respect to our conviction that well, the conviction of many that Donald Trump is, in fact, Hitler, there's something there's something about that absurdity mm. that makes me nervous. I am probably much more concerned that it might be a consequence of where we are on the coast and our, our elite enclave. I'm much more concerned about the danger of good intentions wielded for noble purposes um, in the form of policy, like having really bad outcomes um, or turning potentially tyrannical um, than I am about the prospect of a uh, of a gross, sort of trollish, orange-haired mm. malcontent who has uh, 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 an interest in building walls and grabbing people by the crotch. 
I don't know that that's the person that's likely to turn America into a disgusting yeah. shithole. If not, I'm, I'm more worried about the the elegant person who has the trappings of civility and can wield those things effectively and can still degrade norms and expand the power of the presidency and do all kinds of other evil. So I'm with you on the on the is it on the, the death power of civility? Thing, but but, the, the, but these things these things are affecting culture now. Where 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 because that's where we came into yeah. this, where where it's not just a matter of having strong political opinions or being absolutely offended by the things he says yeah. or the policies he's putting in forth. It's that anyone associated with him, anyone who supports him, the, the MAGA hats, yeah. uh, that these people are now untouchable in society. Yeah. And obviously that, that will be completely flipped. Yeah. You know, so so this is this is the question that and I don't have the answer to it. I'm I'm still struggling with it because I do think that you you know it's it's totally within the rights of a free society to to, to say to disrespect them, yeah. Yeah, to say no, hell with you hell with you person yeah. in power, you know, um, you know, get out of my restaurant. Yeah. But it when 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 that is a talisman for every single person who is even somewhat affiliated with the administration, the party, yeah. or who votes for them. Um, then I don't know how that's workable. I don't. I, 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 don't I think know. it's the, the, that's the issue, though, yeah. and it's it's the reason why. Even last week when we were talking, um, I, I mentioned like the drapes, hmm. like uh, the civility is is something, but this is just a an attribute of our broader um, our broader cosmopolitan society and to the extent that everything has become political, I think that's probably the reason for the degradation and how mm. we view one another. And that lack of trust, that sense that those people aren't even worth talking to, the sensibility that every Republican is actually a racist mm -hmm. in a secret or explicit way, or that every Democrat is actually a pinko sympathizer who hates America. Aggressive first. leftist. Yeah. I mean, these these are sentiments that predate Donald Trump. He he may supercharge them. He may amplify them in certain ways. But those sentiments existed before. Oh, sure. And I remember growing when the, when the Tea Party was the end of the world. Yeah. I remember when Obama was the end of the world. Sure. I mean, uh, and, and Bush, I, Bush was a fascist. I think that I think that sort of hysteria is potentially dangerous. I also think that just the encroachment of of government into every area and facet of our personal lives is part of what is actually increasing the danger. So it's a matter of of put placing some priority on things and saying that the civility stuff is perhaps the the smoke and the fire is really just the sphere of everything political. We didn't just become political, politically tribal. We've been this way for yeah. a very long time. Um, FDR so, helped to supercharge a lot of that stuff um, with interest group politics. But as it stands today, to the extent it's dangerous, it's probably for, for other reasons. So to put it a pin in it, perhaps we can agree that we should tone it down a little bit as a, you know, as a, as a people, as a 300 million deep person country, maybe not kick each other out of our restaurants, but all press secretaries should never be allowed to eat anyone. <laughs> I think that is a very, very good position for us to strike. Um, and Yes, be be aware of your hysteria um, and save some of it for the next administration, whoever the hell they happen to be. Make certain that you direct plenty of hatred and contempt their way, too. So. Amen. There we are. All right, Fisher. Well, hey. I this was enjoyable. Yeah, um, very, very legal. Unusual and yeah. strange. Um, but that's what we do here. Um, it's also probably the most uh, radical uh, in terms of these little weird intermissions that you and I have had here. So I hope I hope folks can tolerate it and that they'll be okay until uh, Moynihan and Welch get back. So. Yeah, this is quite a dispatch. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. 
Trojan heart. <laughs>